Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Psalm 16 is our text this morning as we continue to seek comfort in the Psalter. We read these words, a mictamus, a song of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Father, we ask your blessing on the reading of your word and its proclamation. Pray that you would give these words life, that they would speak to us, that they would cut us to the quick, that they would give to us and fill us with the hope of the resurrection. Lord, we ask it in the name of our resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Psalm 16, among other things, is a resurrection psalm. It's a resurrection psalm, which makes it a very appropriate psalm for us to contemplate this morning on Easter Sunday. Now, you've heard me read the psalm, and the question you may have in your mind, and as you look back over the words, you may ask yourself, what is it that makes this a resurrection psalm? Where exactly does this psalm speak about resurrection? Well, to find that answer, we need to go to the New Testament, because in the New Testament, this psalm plays an interesting role in the proclamation of the gospel. Remember the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out and suddenly the, the apostles, the disciples, had a boldness to speak that they had not had before. Peter, who days before had denied Christ publicly, now boldly with the power of the Spirit, gets up in front of multitudes and proclaims the gospel. When he does that, when he preaches that sermon in Acts chapter 2, if you look at Acts chapter 2, you turn there and you scan through, depending on what Bible you're looking at, if you're looking in the English Standard Version that we use here, you'll see that the text of his sermon is actually set out in verse. You can see the, the Old Testament passage that he's preaching on. There are actually two passages that he preaches on. One of them is from Psalm 110, and the other 
is here. Psalm 16. It's interesting to see when you look at that sermon, that kind of first Holy Spirit proclamation of the gospel, what the message of that sermon was. What exactly was the gospel that Peter proclaimed? It was actually really simple. When Peter told the story of the gospel, there was just two things, just two parts. You crucified Jesus. That was point number one. Point number two was God raised him from the dead. You crucified Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. There it is, in a nutshell. Peter's first proclamation of the gospel. And famously, he cites Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. But also, at length, he quotes from our text, Psalm 16. He quotes in Psalm 16, especially from verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. And he makes an interesting point about this. It's a psalm of David, remember? And so, as you read the words... You imagine these are words that David is speaking in the first person. They apply to him. But Peter points out, David died. David is in the tomb. His body corrupted. You can go to the tomb. You, you can see this is a verifiable fact. So the words of this psalm cannot have been speaking to him. These words must be a promise to someone else, someone yet to come. And that someone is Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead. Those words were not written for David, who saw corruption. They were pointing to Christ, who did not. This was a common use of this psalm by the apostles. Paul uses the same psalm with the same explanation in Acts chapter 13. Starting in verse 35, we read these words. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed By the law of Moses. So the resurrection is being used by Peter and Paul as a summary of the gospel. All of the good news is proven by the fact of the resurrection. The resurrection, you might say, is is proof of the gospel. Jesus said he was going to forgive our sins. We believed that his crucifixion, that in his death, he had conquered death. But the event that proved that these things were facts was his resurrection from the dead, the fact that the grave could not hold him. The resurrection is the proof. The resurrection that we celebrate today is the proof that the gospel is real, that the good news is true that Jesus really has triumphed over death. When we think about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, there are a few points theologians draw, some subtleties, you might say, that theologians draw. So 
when we talk about the incarnation, Jesus' birth, the fact that Jesus took on flesh and dwelled among us, the, the, the humanness of Jesus, we often point to the fact that, that this shows the goodness of being human. That the fact of the resurrection should lead us to see the goodness in our humanity. So sometimes people think it's very spiritual to wish that they could uh, slough off this mortal coil. You know, if only I could be separated from my body and just be a spirit, a pure spirit floating around in heaven, that would be wonderful. But in the example of Jesus' incarnation, we see that actually our humanity, our embodiedness is good. That we are meant to be physical. There's nothing bad about being physical. That's something we see in the incarnation. And when you see Christ resurrected, you see Christ in the flesh. There's something important to, to recognize here. Jesus is resurrected bodily. Jesus doesn't come back from the dead, but as a spirit floating around, Jesus can be touched. The wounds that he suffered for our sake are still marking his flesh. His body continues to be physical, although it has been transformed in ways that we can't account for, in ways that we too will be transformed on the day of resurrection. So the resurrection, it affirms the goodness of, of physicality, of embodiment, that sort of thing. But it actually goes a little step further. The resurrection proves not just the goodness of being human, but it also proves the redeemability of humanity. And that's important. When we think of the weakness of the flesh, the corruption of the flesh, the way that sin weighs us down, sometimes it's easy to think of what we are and who we are as irredeemable, as beyond salvation. There's a project that, that God looks upon, and, and the reality is you've just got to start over. But Christ's resurrection in the flesh demonstrates the redeemability of our humanity. But consider this. The resurrection, yeah, it's proof of the gospel. It's proof of these ideas that we've been talking about. But the resurrection is actually more than proof. It's more than, than evidence in a gospel presentation. The resurrection is also hope. The resurrection isn't just proof of the gospel. It's also the hope of the gospel. This is a point, uh, bear with me, I know I say this a lot, I repeat it over and over again, but I think it needs to be repeated over and over again that the Christian hope of salvation is not disembodied spiritual life for eternity. We say to ourselves that the gospel is that if I believe in Christ, when I die, my spirit leaves my body to go live in heaven with God forever. If we stop there, we have not actually gotten to the hope. Because the Christian hope is not that by faith, our spirits might live forever. The Christian hope is that just as Christ died, but then was raised again physically, that we, though we die, will be raised again physically. The resurrection of the body is our hope. It's what we look forward to. It's why we cling to the gospel, because we believe and trust 
that what happened with Christ will happen with us. That's why in the reading that we heard earlier from 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is referred to as the first fruits of the dead. Not that there's something unique about the resurrection that we celebrate, that, that this is a once-for-all thing, this is never going to happen again, only that this is the model. This is the manifestation of what God intends to do for all of us when Christ returns. That's why Paul writes in Romans 6, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. And as we heard earlier, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Resurrection of the body is not abstract. It's really particular. It's a promise that if you believe in Christ, then your spirit and your body will be reunited when he returns. That you will be redeemed, body and soul. You, as a whole person, will be redeemed. That's what the gospel is about. That's what it's about. That's the hope. And Psalm 16 is a song about that hope. It is a song that celebrates that promise of redemption, if you have eyes to see. So as we look at Psalm 16, and we look seeking that hope of resurrection, you'll find three things, find a, like a three-part structure to this psalm that goes something like this. The first part urges us to take refuge in the Lord. Take refuge in the Lord. First eight verses make this point. And then in verse 9, the second point, comfort will follow. Take refuge in the Lord, and then comfort will follow. And then the last part of the psalm gives the reason. Because He will give you life. Take comfort in the Lord. Comfort will follow because he will give you life. Last time we looked at Psalm 2, and if you remember the ending of Psalm 2, we read these words in Psalm 2, verse 12, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. In the final moments of my sermon last week, I urged you not only to have faith in Christ, but to take refuge in him. And now Psalm 16 begins with an appeal to God to preserve the singer. Because in you I take refuge. So what does it mean to take refuge in God? What do we mean by taking refuge in God? If you work through the psalm, you can actually see six different things that are mentioned in the song. Six different aspects, we might say, of taking refuge in the Lord. So let's take a look at those. First, in verse 2, we see what may be the most important aspect of taking refuge in the Lord. We read these words, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. First aspect taking refuge in God, is making the God of Israel your only Lord. Only the God of Israel is your Lord. 
In the Hebrew, this sentence sounds a little bit different. Well, you can imagine it sounds entirely different. But, but in two key ways, uh, there's a repetition in English that is not present in the Hebrew. And your English translation clues you into this because the first time the word Lord is used, it's, it's in uh, small caps. And the second time it's used, it is in lowercase. So you can see that this is a convention of English translations and it reflects a difference in the underlying language. This sentence, if we were to read it in the original or translate it more literally, would be something like, I say to Yahweh, you are my Adonai. I say to Yahweh, which is the covenant name of the God of Israel, distinguishing him from all other gods, you are my Adonai, you are my Lord. In that confession of faith, there's a renunciation of every other God of every other hope, every other Lord, every other Savior. I have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. To take refuge in him means to make the God of Israel your only Lord. In the second part of that verse, you see another aspect, which is putting all your hope for good in his hands. It says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Whatever good there is in my life, whatever good I pursue, whatever I long for, all of it is found in you and nowhere else. Nothing on the side. No supplement. All my good is in you. I have no good apart from you. Your providence cares for me. In order to take refuge in God, we must put our hope for good in his hands alone. And then look at the next line. Verse 3, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. In order to take refuge in the Lord, we must do something else that we saw in Psalm 1. We must delight in the people of God. The psalmist sees the righteous. He sees the ones who follow after God and he takes delight in their example has a desire to unite himself to them. Delighting in the people of God is essential to taking our refuge in him. In that delight in the people of God, there's also a contrary uh, rejection as well that you see in the next verse, in verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. So idolaters, those who chase after another god, will encounter sorrow after sorrow, which seems like a general statement against idolatry. But as it continues, you see that this is actually a rejection of idolatry by the psalmist himself. Those sorrows uh, multiply. And then he says, their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. In a culture full of idolatry where people are swearing in the name of other gods, participating in the rites of other gods, he refuses to go along with it. His delight will be in God's people. He will not, he will not participate in idolatry. He will refuse these temptations. Verses five and six. We read, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. 
taking refuge in God means recognizing his providential care. And the metaphor here is, is one of inheritance, specifically that moment that we saw a while back when we were preaching through Joshua, where the promised land was divided up. The lines that have fallen in pleasant places here are border lines, limits of territory. These were chosen by Lot, and we're saying here, this idea is that God held the lot, God held the choice, and as a consequence of that, the lines have fallen in pleasant places. My inheritance in the promise is beautiful. All of that is about trusting in God for what we have, recognizing his providence in our lives. In order to take refuge in him, we must recognize that he cares for us, that that the beauty of our inheritance depends on his holding the lot in his hand. And finally, you look at verses 7 and 8. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. In order to take refuge in God, you must be taught by God. You must be taught by him. The unshakable confidence that's spoken of here is a confidence that comes with knowledge. If you don't want to be shaken, if you don't want to be blown, as we saw in Psalm 1, by every wind that comes along, the way to be rooted and grounded is to be taught, to be counseled by God, to delight in His Word, in His way. So what does it mean to take refuge in God? It means to make the God of Israel your only Lord to put all your hope for good in his hands, to delight in the people of God and refuse the temptations of idolatry, to recognize his providential care and to be taught by him. That's what it means to take refuge in him. And if you take refuge in the Lord, then comfort will follow. Therefore, he says in verse 9, therefore, meaning what follows as a result, Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. That reward for refuge is one that's worth thinking about. Because of those six things we just looked at, because of that refuge, the righteous, those who have sheltered in the Lord, receive gladness. They receive Gladness and also security. Gladness, joy, and also security. And they possess these things, he says, in heart, in their whole being, in the flesh. In other words, the whole person is suffused with these gifts. The entire person is comforted by this joy, by this sense of security. And where does that come from? Where does that whole comfort originate? It comes from the resurrection of the body. It comes from the promise of life everlasting. Take refuge in the Lord and comfort will follow because he will give you life. And that's how we get to verse 10, which the apostles proclaimed. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, but let your Holy One see corruption. 
You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. When Peter and Paul quote this psalm, they give us permission to interpret it differently than we might have interpreted it otherwise. They're telling us to read Psalm 16 with our Jesus glasses on. And when we read them with our Jesus glasses on, the psalms reveal wonderful promises to us. There's a life of righteousness that's being described here in Psalm 16. We've gone through in detail the the, the steps for taking refuge in God, for pursuing the way of the righteous. But the righteous life that's being described is the one that Jesus gave for us. If what you take away from this psalm is something like, ah, there are six things that I must do in order to take refuge in the Lord, then you are missing the good news of Psalm 16. Because even those six things, boiling it down, giving you the points, you can write them down on a piece of paper and carry them with you and, and work on doing that list of six things, the reality is you will fail. Instead, when we read the, this psalm, read these words with the apostles, we recognize that this isn't a list of things for us to do. These are six things Jesus did so that we might find refuge in God through him. What Psalm 16, this resurrection psalm, means to us every Easter is that what needs to be done for us has been done by Christ. It's what we proclaim when we contemplate the crucifixion and the finished work of the cross. But what the resurrection does is it demonstrates that all those promises are true. They are good. They are real. They will come to pass. That's what it means every Easter when we celebrate the resurrection. But it has a special meaning for us this Easter. When the body is threatened, we feel vulnerable, health or well-being, the well-being of your loved ones, your work, your future, when all of it seems to be in jeopardy. When uncertainty seems to be the, the story of the day, we need to hear these words. If times like this are good for anything, they're good for this. When we endure what we are enduring currently, when you look at all of the things that seemed secure, that were sources of security in your life, when you looked at all the things that were sources of gladness and joy in your life, and you recognize how fragile those things are, how easily they can be taken away from you, from all of us. The silver lining is we start to recognize, my hope was never in any of that. My hope was never in any of that. If it had been, if those were the things that you had put your hope in, how miserable you would be in days like this. But if your hope is not in, in the joy that comes from material possessions or the joy that comes from health alone in this life, 
if your security it does not come from a bank balance or a good job or or a retirement plan if instead your hope is in Christ then times like this remind you that Christ is the only one who can bring you into that refuge the only one whose righteousness can bring you into relationship with God only through Christ can we enjoy the the fullness of joy the pleasures forevermore that this psalm sings about. If I know that I will live, if I know that I will have fullness of joy regardless of the circumstances now, if I know that I will have pleasures forevermore regardless of what's happening now, then gladness and security are still possible, still obtainable even now. Because they don't depend on what's happening now. They depend on what happened that morning when Jesus' followers gathered around the tomb and found that He was no longer there. The good news of the Gospel. You crucified Jesus, but God raised Him from the dead. That's good news that we can cling to because that resurrection power doesn't stop with Jesus. It is the power that is promised to us that we too might enjoy life eternal. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.